You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hi, Robert. On today's <laughs> episode, uh, you're laughing because we're, we're trying a new we're thing out. we're actually waving at each we other. see each other, so we were waving, yes. Um, on today's episode, we talk with therapist Crispin Mayfield about the science of attachment, how we connect with each other and with God, and how faith communities can shape those attachments and connections. But first, Holly, how are you this week? I am doing all right. I'm doing, I'm, dare I say I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah. It's a, it's a hesitant thing a to say, perhaps. It's a statement these yeah. days. Yeah. Whew, man. But I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm uh, good. Yeah, things are kind of rolling along. Had a couple of projects this week. I know you and I were just talking about it looks like I'm in a, a very different room, but we're just rearranging a couple of things, uh, revamping mm-hmm. some things in our house. That has been uh, fun. The, the kind of like equal parts fun and frustrating where I don't know if all your projects ever go this way, but I'm like, oh, this will be pretty easy. We'll knock this out. And then you're like, you get halfway through and you're like, oh, I need a bunch of stuff. Dang it. I did this wrong. Oh, okay. We need to, you know, so, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's part of it. Uh, so, you know, trying to that roll is. with that. But yeah, I've been doing some of that this week. That's awesome. That's good. I mean, and I can see it and it looks great. So some of those projects that, you know, some of the the work that you're doing, like in the room that you're in right now, it looks great. Yeah, it's been good. I finished reading Laura McCowan. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, her book, We Are the Luckiest, this week. And Man, it was, it, it builds on some of what we've talked about with like Seth Haynes this time last year um, around addiction and recovery. And it just was such a good book. So anyways, that's kind of what's been happening this nice. week. Yeah. So you had a question because I'm not as good with coming up with these questions yes. that I want to give you space for. And I'm a little yes. nervous to do that, but... <laughs> No, it's a, it's not, it's not a scary one. Um, no. So I was curious: is there anything that you have that falls in this category of like, ah, uh, I, I totally could get rid of that, but for some reason I just kind of can't. You know, it's like from oh. a different time in your life where you're like, oh, I keep, I keep holding on to this thing, and every time I look at it, I think I could get rid of this. I don't need it, but you just kind of can't. You know? You mean like the Tupperware boxes that are in my closet? The things that are in that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, things, uh, you know, to, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to use things that you're attached to, you know, um, just to throw the segue under the bus there. But, uh, you know, I'm just curious, things that have some weird sentimental value, not like actual, you know, like your children's artwork, not, you know, but something that you're like, Mm -hmm. this shouldn't really have sentimental value, but, but does. Know like things that although I think we could probably all define what sentimental value and like actual sentimental sentimental value is versus like sure, sure. you know the whatever I I mean I don't know like I'm thinking of like what I said what was in those those Tupperware boxes I've got like my yearbooks in there I have photographs from like mm-hmm. you know my childhood and I have ceramics maybe that would be the somewhat weird thing. But I have like ceramics that I made when I was in high school. And for some reason, I mean, I don't Hmm. have them on display, but for some reason, like there are things that I've created that like I just have enough attachment to them that like I just can't let those things go. But Hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
So maybe those are a few things. I've got journals from like all the way back, but I think the ceramics is probably the, the like yeah. weirdish thing. But what about you? Yeah. Well, I like that. I mean, you, you created them. So that's, you know, it makes sense. That's um, fair. I, have, I brought it to show you. We're going to do show and tell. <laughs> ah, yes. So I have, so I have right this now. big box. <laughs> Let me show you how big. I have this big box <laughs> of old Archie comics. They're all like, this entire box is all like, so when I was a, a kid, oh my god, these were like in the, you know, the impulse grabs, you know, yeah. at, at like Publix or whatever. Uh-huh. Every time we went grocery shopping with my parents, I would say, can I get an Archie? And like, you know, some percentage of the time they would say yes. So I mm-hmm. have this entire box full of these old Archie comics oh that like, clearly gosh. I don't, I'm, I don't read these. Uh-huh. They were at my parents' house for a long time. And then somewhat recently they were like, here you go. Here's this box that we don't want in our house. Uh, but there's like no reason for me to keep this big box of them. And it's like actually pretty annoying to try and find somewhere to put this box. Right, uh, right, right. Some part of me is like, oh, but those are my Archies, you know? Yeah. Are you like hoping that maybe Gray one day will go through and read them or? I I, get, I mean, I genuinely, <laughs> I don't care. Like I've tried looking at them in the past couple months and they're not that funny. I mean, they're like kind of humorous in the way that, that cartoons mm-hmm. are like kind of humorous, you know? Mm-hmm. But like, I don't think I would be like, oh, he's reading my Archies. Like, I don't because I don't have any like formative, <laughs> sentimental value where like these were so important to me. It's mm-hmm. just I don't know. I have a bunch of them, and it seems like, you know, I don't know. It feels that's weird so to get rid of them. No, that's. I think. I mean, I get it. I. I mean, I. Yeah, I get it. Actually, I. I can think more. There are some things that Corey has that are very similar to that, like comics and movies. I know movies was a really hard thing for us to let go of like at one point we got rid of a ton of Mm. dvds because we were like we don't watch movies on dvds anymore and if anything we have all the digital versions like on you know on the tv and so things like that but no all your archies that's cute (laughs) well speaking of things that we have attachments to right Mm -hmm. uh is our our segue there that i I mentioned earlier. Um, But this week we talk with Crispin Mayfield, who does a lot of work. Uh, He's a therapist, but then he also does a lot of work around attachment science and and how that interacts with faith. Uh, He has a podcast and we talk about all of that. But I'm curious, uh, is attachment theory something that you are like really familiar with or had you ever kind of considered it with faith? I mean, like, or was this episode kind of like, oh, this is all very kind of interesting? I think where I had most kind of been oriented to it was tied more to faith, but how we attach with a higher power and with God. And I know after the episode, we talked a little bit with Crispin about that. Um, But I really loved how he unpacked it and how he talked about each of these um, types of attachment and thinking about like, how do, how, how do they weave in with our faith and, you know, how are they connected? And yeah, I, and, and I just loved having Crispin on the show because I know we've been connected with him for quite a while, like in social media spaces. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed this episode. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I would say very similarly, right? I'm familiar with the, the basics of the theory and, and some things like that. But what I love about his work is kind of focusing entirely on how, how it overlaps with faith. And we even get in this episode, so he breaks it down uh, from like, if you've never really heard about attachment theory, right? Because we know that not all our listeners have, mm-hmm. but then, you know, even towards the end, we say like, okay, how to, how to, if you're 
part of a faith community and helping to shape that, right? Like how can a faith community impact that? How does your theology yeah. impact that, right? Like all these very kind of practical, you know, not just like this is a theory of here's, I can understand people, but like, mm-hmm. okay, what does this look like? How does this impact kind of the the moves that we make in the world and how we shape communities and things like that, which mm-hmm. um, is always kind of one of my favorite parts of these episodes is yeah. when we say, okay, when the, the rubber meets the road, the what, so how what. is this helpful, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, the so what part. Yeah. And so- I love That's it. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear this one too. All right. Enjoy our interview with Crispin Mayfield. Hey, today we are so excited to be joined by Crispin Mayfield. Crispin is a therapist in Portland, Oregon, and is trained in emotionally focused therapy. He is continually exploring the intersection of attachment science and faith, which we're going to talk about today. In addition to his podcast, Attached to the Invisible Podcast, he also co-hosts the podcast, The Prophetic Imagination Station, with his wife, D.L. Mayfield. Crispin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Mm. Good. Thank you so much for having me on. I have been listening to your podcast for years now. And um, so I just really love the conversations that you all have been hosting um, and creating like such a great resource for those of us that are trying to figure out the vast field of mental health and faith. That's awesome. Well, we are honored that you are a listener and super excited to bring you on as a guest this week. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like our audience to know about you before we kind of dig in? No, I think that um, definitely following along on the Attached to the Invisible podcast, we get into a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today. So if it whets your appetite, definitely check check out what I'm doing over there with my friend Amy Simmons. Yeah. Well, I know, I mean, that's a perfect segue into uh, kind of laying some groundwork, right? But I know we've touched on attachment on the show before, but knowing that obviously not everyone listens to every episode and those were a while back, right? What are we talking about when we talk about attachment kind of as a concept, right? Because we have folks in the audience that are mental health professionals who might say like, yeah, I'm totally on board. I I understand, but then also faith leaders or just other individuals. And, you know, so just for kind of all of us to get on the same page, what, what does that mean uh, attachment in terms of the work you do in our conversation for today? Yeah. So a lot of people are most familiar with attachment in terms of attachment styles. That's kind of like the pop psychology of it is, um, do you, in a relationship, do you tend to be clingy, or do you tend to be standoffish? Um, and uh, where are you okay with being on your own, but also being okay with being close to others? Um, so you, there are different terms for it. Anxious, ambivalent, preoccupied would be sort of the clingy sort of approach to relationships. Avoidant um, or dismissive would be the more detached, standoffish. And there's a lot of really helpful stuff there. Uh, But what I think is most helpful when it comes to understanding attachment and what's most true to the understanding the basic concept is that we have this drive for connection. And what we can see is there are different strategies that we use to get the connection that we need, to get the closeness that we need. And that is kind of the basis of attachment. And I always like to tell a story from... Uh, John, Dr. John Bowlby is the founder of attachment theory. He worked on mm-hmm. that in the 1950s, 60s, and onward. But he tells the story of this three-year-old boy. This is heartbreaking. 
Um, I'll just warn you ahead of time. But yeah, this three-year-old yeah. boy is put in this home where um, his mom is his single mom is able to work, uh, but she's also able to come and spend time with him. And so it's this way for her to be able to work without losing custody. And she says, you know, be a good boy and I'll come back. And, um, you know, be a good boy, don't cry, and I'll come back. And so then she gets the flu and is hospitalized. And he doesn't know this. He's just three years old. And so uh, the staff observe him and they notice uh, he doesn't cry like a normal kid should cry when they miss their mom. Instead, he just nods his head. And he nods his head and he says, Mama is going to come back and she's going to put on my coat and she's going to put on my, my shoes and she's going to take me home. And then he starts repeating that over and over. Uh, but then the hospital staff, they say, they say, stop repeating this. Like, you're annoying the other kids. You're annoying us. Stop repeating it. And his mom said, you know, be a good boy and then I'll come back for you. So he, of course, he wants to be a good boy. So he starts just mouthing the words and mimicking the motions. And like by the end of the week, he's the other kids are running around and playing and he's just kind of in this motionless heap on the side. Mm. And that tells me the trauma of disconnection, right? We need more than just food and clothes. We need our parents. We need the people that we care about. But it also tells me that we will do whatever it takes to get connection. And that's when it comes to faith. I've been really curious to look at what are the ways that we try to get closeness with God? And what are the ways that work well? And what are the ways that don't work well? And what are the ways, you know, like this kid, Patrick, this three-year-old, what are the things that we do repeatedly that wear us out? Because uh, we're trying so badly to be good so that uh, we can stay close to God in a way that doesn't actually create rest. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that is, it is such a painful story, but I think that that's a great um, illustration of attachment and, and how important those interactions are with others, particular, you know, our parental figures, but then as you started noting um, our attachment to God. And so actually, you know, I know oftentimes we do talk about attachment in terms of how it shapes our interactions with others kind of throughout our lifetime. What I'm curious, like what first got you thinking about attachment and faith, which you just started kind of alluding to a moment ago? Yeah, what really struck me is what what first got me thinking about it was kids that had gone through abuse and shame or abuse mm. um, and held a lot of shame and this feeling like there's something at my core that keeps me from being lovable and keeps others from being close to me. And basically what we're talking about is attachment trauma. And so this idea, if we don't get the love that we need, if we don't get our needs met in these specific ways. And by the way, if you're a parent listening and you're like, oh no, am I going to mess up my kid? Really what it takes to be, to have a, to build a solid attachment with your kid is in those moments of need, you have to show up 50% of the time. So you don't have to be perfect parent all the time. Uh, really, it's just when your kid needs you, you have to show up 50% of the time and or repair the relationship. And so it doesn't take a lot to be able to respond to your kid. Parents get really nervous about, am I messing up my kid? You know, we're talking about like less than 
50 percent you know we're talking about Mm -hmm. around 50 percent but when we think about kids that are neglected or abused that they get this message that there's something really wrong with you that makes you unworthy of love and belonging they it creates this sense in them that there's something really wrong that drives others away and that actually really resonated with my upbringing in the church that I always felt like there's something about me that is sinful and wrong that keeps God away, this distance between us. And the idea that like Jesus kind of hides my sin from God so that I can get close, but that's not actual closeness. Mm. Um, And so for me, it just perpetuated the shame of like, God doesn't actually really want to be around me. God just, uh, you know, Jesus covered my sins with his blood. So it's kind of like I'm wearing a disguise, but the real me underneath, Mm. like God wouldn't actually like me. And it got me thinking, like, what are all the ways that I myself and that we in the church try to get close to God with kind of this undergirding of like, I don't think God really likes me. I'm not holy enough. I'm not good enough. I have to change myself. Again, just like Patrick, it's like, what do I, you know, these things that we do to try to get God to like us. And really what we've lost, what I found uh, has been lost um, in a lot of faith traditions is that God delights in us, which is actually comes up in attachment research, is that one key to having that secure attachment of feeling uh, like your parent loves you is delight. It's not about being good enough. It's just like, you know, when I look at my kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so funny or you're so cute or I like you so much. But it's really not about anything other than just like who they are. Mm-hmm. Um But that, again, I think has been lost. And so I think as I was wrestling through my own faith and trying to figure out how does God feel about me and why does this feel so familiar to these stories I'm reading about kids with attachment trauma? Hmm. Hmm. What's striking to me about what you were just talking about is I know, you know, maybe like, okay, we kind of unintentionally do something. But like the theology that you were just describing is like verbatim theology that that we see sometimes people talking about you know god doesn't actually like you he's just kind of you know is okay with you because Mm. of this other you know like that Mm -hmm. type of thing and i think you've just articulated something about why uh, those like make my skin crawl when i see them uh, you know argued online or or Mm -hmm. something like that because there's like obviously whole streams of people who like that is exactly how they would describe kind of their like theological basis Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I th- I think about it as I call it like makeover boyfriend theology, where um, <laughs> you know like the rom coms where it's like where it's like well he's kind of like a schlup but like if I start dating him like I can change his clothes oh my and gosh. you know mm-hmm. and and I remember thinking like God doesn't really like me but like when I get to heaven I'll be this perfect version of myself and then God will like me so God is just like. Mm keeping me around so that I uh for this like new model of me which then means that the 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 person that I am right now isn't actually worthy of love isn't actually mm-hmm. like doesn't find belonging and it really strikes me Brené Brown talks about the definition of shame as uh the idea that you are unworthy of love or belonging because you failed to meet some standard and I was like, wait a minute, that is literally what I was told growing up, mm. is that because Gosh. of these things I've done, 
I don't belong and I'm not worthy of love. And, um, you know, you could get in there. There are many, many, many theological conversations around this. But I think the fact that I felt this way and talked to so many other people that feel this way uh, makes it a worthy conversation, right? Like, what can we learn about attachment to know what are the basic needs? We know that we need to know that we're loved, that our parent is there for us, that there's nothing we can do that's going to get in the way of our parent loving us. Of course, there's going to be conflict, all those sorts of things. But really, at our core, we need to know that that connection is not threatened. And uh, I think for a lot of people, our connection is felt threatened in these different ways. I'll give one example uh, that stands out to me. So my wife and I do a podcast about 80s and 90s evangelical theology. Um, Mm. And so we started talking about focus on the family's adventures in Odyssey, and uh, which is a a radio show that's been running for 30 years. And so we look at kind of some of the themes there. But another uh, media form that focus on the family produced was McGee and me. And I remember this, this uh, story, uh, the big lie, uh, this episode where uh, the main character lies and his dad comes and talks to him and says, Hey, lying is a problem because it's a sin and sin can cut your relationship off from God. And so, like, mm-hmm. as a kid, being like, here's focus on the family, this, you know, major, like, yeah. evangelical organization that's saying, yeah, your your salvation is based on your relationship with God. But if an 11-year-old telling a lie, like, threatens that relationship, like, we should be terrified. We should be scared. Mm. And that can actually set off the attachment part of our brain that goes into fight or flight. Attachment is connected to our survival. And so when it comes even to God, it can feel like a threat to our own safety when it comes to, am I connected? Am I close? And so, of course, of course, we're going to wear ourselves out trying to make sure that we are close to God in these different ways. And we pick up cues from different cultural things like McGee and me, where it's like, okay, well, if you lie, you might be putting your relationship in jeopardy. So make sure to not do that. Mm. No, that's, I mean, all of that, it makes, you know, such good sense in terms of unpacking. Like, I love how y'all dug into some of these, uh, these themes with, these older shows and with focus on the family and, you know, what you were just saying about imagining as an 11 year old hearing that and how, how traumatizing actually really is, is what that would be hearing those messages. But certainly many, many of us heard them at some Mm -hmm. point in our background. I am curious about just taking a step backward because we have started diving into attachment and certainly talking about attachment and faith, but One thing I know, as Robert mentioned, we have talked about attachment a bit on the show, but do you mind unpacking a little bit about the different types of attachment and maybe Mm -hmm. just kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, that attachment isn't like one specific thing, but that there are different facets to it? Yeah. Yeah, Do you mind unpacking those types? Yeah. And what I can do as we go is talk about what that looks like in uh, childhood relationships and what that might look like with God. Uh, one thing that I do want to say, uh, my friend, uh, my friend Jeffrey Ulrich, uh, who wrote a book called The Six Needs of Every Child with his wife, Amy Ulrich, uh, he's actually done a lot of mm, research mm-hmm. around attachment, which is wonderful. 
But he says that categories are for research. They're not for real life, which I think is it's helpful Mm, to think in terms of like you might as Mm -hmm. I'm talking through these, you might be like, oh, yeah, that's totally me. And then you might (laughs) be like, oh, but that's also me. And that's Mm -hmm. normal and fine. So um, but if we look at these, you know, categories, first you have secure um, and secure attachment basically is this idea that. I can trust my relationship with my, let's say, parent. So when I need them, I can go to them. I don't need to be there all the time because I know that if I need them, they're available. So I can go and explore the world, but I don't need to be worrying all the time about the relationship. And I would say that that Mm. um, looks pretty similar in romantic relationships. I'm flexible. I'm able to be close. I'm able to be far. I have this sort of inherent trust that we are okay. Even if we go through conflict, even if stuff comes up in our relationship, like I'm, there's not a lot of anxiety there. And I would say similarly with God, uh, when we have a secure relationship with God, there's this dynamic that I can go to you when I when I need, I don't feel a lot of pressure on this relationship. And God really is a a resource. And in a lot of both psychological research in general around religion, but also attachment research has said, like, God can be the most secure attachment mm-hmm. figure in our life, right? And mm-hmm. there's totally that uh, idea of God being a resource, and I think that's throughout Scripture, is that God is this person that we can turn to, this greater, stronger, wiser other. But uh, sometimes things sh- play out differently in that relationship. So I want to talk about uh, there are then three types of insecure ways of relating, and so I'll talk through each of those. One is anxious, ambivalent, um, or preoccupied. And the idea of it being preoccupied is because you're preoccupied about the connection. Uh, It's Mm. really all you can focus on. So this is the kid that's like, I can't go play in the playground because what if I go play in the playground and mom leaves me? I can't trust that mom is really in tune with me enough Uh, is focus on me enough to trust her to meet my needs. Therefore, I need to make sure to keep her close. And so this is a kid that's just going to like cling to mom's skirt on the playground or sit right next to mom because that's a safer way of keeping connection. And this happens with parents that are uh, erratic, typically. So uh, mom is totally there for me one day um, and then not there for me another day. And so then I'm trying to figure out what do I do? Can I behave the right way? Can I can I uh, do the right thing to so that mom will show up for me consistently? So that's a kid that ends up then feeling like I'm not worthy of love, but if I can perform hard enough or if I can um, ask enough that I can get what I need. And so that can look like being a good kid, but it can also mean being clingy or crying as soon as mom leaves. And then there's this ambivalent part, which is which was hard for researchers to figure out. What they were finding is that these kids, mm. they would get really upset when mom left. But then when mom came back, they would push against her and kick against her. So it was like they wanted to be close, but they were also mad. And uh, it's hard to say these were one-year-olds. It's hard to say what was going on in their mind. But it to me, it kind of says this idea of like, I'm mad because I really need you and you weren't there for me. Hmm. And so then when we look at adult relationships, this shows up. And, and because of this anxiety about, are we okay? Are you there for me? Uh, these are people that 
even on a neurological level, they become very quick at looking for little cracks in the relationship. And they tend to go to worst case scenario. So uh, you didn't text me. And now I'm going down this anxiety rabbit trail of, you know, are we going to break up? Is something wrong? Right. Whereas a secure person is going to be like, okay, I'm, I'm able to take a step back and say they probably are busy or they probably lost reception. Uh, this is someone that's going to that's going to get really scared and freak out. And then there's going to be that anger as well. Why? Why didn't you text me back? And what's underneath the anger is I really need you and I really need to know we're OK. So, again, this mm. is just a, a different strategy of getting that connection that we need. Uh, and it probably made the most sense in childhood. If I didn't freak out like this, if I didn't get really upset, my parents didn't pay attention to me. Um, but this was the way that I got my needs met. And so it worked in childhood, but then it doesn't work so well uh, in adulthood. Mm-hmm. But it is the sort of clinginess. And people with this preoccupied ambivalent attachment style tend to be uh, more emotionally expressive. They tend to feel like they're too much. It's like, I I have all these emotions and that might be hard to see from the outside. From the outside, uh, other people might be like, they're so needy, they're so emotional, they have all these feelings. But when you get down to it, often those people feel like I'm actually too much for the people around me. And so they're kind of stuck between this, like, I know I'm too much, but I also can't keep it in. I really need you. So I'm still going to text you like 10 times, Mm. even though I know that it's too much. And then with God, these are people that what we would look at with this is like, I know that I'm worthless but I really need you. And so these big displays of like, God, I really need you. And, uh, or it might be various ways, right? It might be like trying to keep your quiet time. It might be trying to worship enough. It might be trying to be good enough. Um, and uh, it can show up in all these ways. What the research has found, um, Todd Hall is an attachment researcher, um, I believe at Rosemead, and uh, does some great stuff. And he's talked about um, how people that have this anxious attachment to God, where it's like, I can't really trust that you're there, so I'm going to do all these things to make sure that you're close. It doesn't resolve that anxiety. It's like, I can only know you're close as long as I'm doing these spiritual things, which doesn't actually lead us into a place of rest, which is like one of the hallmarks of, I would say, the Jewish community uh, around Sabbath. And then Jesus comes and talks about rest as well. But then we find ourselves in this place where it's like Sundays, which is supposed to be like this day of communing with God, becomes can become like, how do I get you to be close? Um, and that can really wear us out. So that's yeah. a picture of that preoccupied, anxious, ambivalent. I w- would want to move on to avoidant dismissive unless there's any follow-up questions. I, I love the way you talked about categories being uh, not necessarily like prescriptive yes. in terms of like, oh, you fit exactly here, yes. here right? Mm-hmm. And one thing uh, that I love about the way you're talking about these is if you're hearing these and you're thinking about, oh, that, you know, that's like, that's me or, oh, that's this person or that person, right? Like if you're kind of having mm-hmm. that kind of experience, making sure and and just like myself included, right, that 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 is used not in like a, okay, now I kind of understand everything about you and right. therefore I can like, you know, there's an easy step to fix this or whatever. But in terms of like an, uh, building some empathy of like, oh, mm-hmm. these are actually ways that people are trying to seek connection and that can help me kind of empathize and, and hear behind mm-hmm. that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But not like a, you know, 
oh, cool, you fit there, and right. you know that that explains everything about you. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's the emotionally focused therapy part coming out. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, of like, we have these categories, but really, like, what's going on underneath? Anyway, hope so. Hopefully, that's coming out. Yes, but I will say my researcher heart, when you mentioned that before, that the categories, you know, that they're helpful for research, but not, I was like, oh, man, but my, my researcher heart loves. <laughs> but I know that right. they, they're they not helpful in the day-to-day right. in, what in a, life. What a, yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes up, is, like, a lot of people have read the book Attached, where they talk about the, the two main, you know, avoidant um, or preoccupied, um, but... I and a lot of my clients have always been like, but I I feel like both of these things. So I, you know, I think that like is yeah. really normalizing for people. Yeah. So no, that's super. I'm glad you. I'm glad you named that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, thinking about avoidant dismissive attachment. These are people that uh, don't. Uh, they think of themselves as logical. They, uh, you know, this is this would be like kind of the typical. John Wayne, you know, stereotype, uh, manly man, I don't have emotions. And yet, the where this often starts, and I'll, I'll talk about first what this looks like in childhood, is this is a kid that if I show emotions, it actually creates disconnection. And to give a framework for this, we need to understand what emotions are for uh, first. So just pause this podcast and go watch Inside Out. Um, oh, my favorite. We watched right, that like so 30 good. times when the pandemic started. That's one oh of our favorite gosh. movies in That's this home. That's so great. Yeah. yeah. And what's great is is that it teaches you about, it teaches you a lot of things. But one of the things is emotions help bring other people close. So at the end, right, she's crying mm-hmm. and she learned like sadness because I'm crying Let's put this in super nerdy academic terms. It activates the caregiving system in the parent. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about attachment, you have the attachment system in the child and, and the caregiving system in the parent. It activates it so that the parent comes and helps the child calm down and provides mm. them with safety. Right. That's and which is actually the way that we work with kids. But that's also the way that emotionally focused therapy, which I practice, operates. Um if we can share sadness, if we can share uh, fear, the other person in the room is naturally going to want to come and give us a hug and comfort us. And so um, Mm. that's the way that emotions work. But imagine that you're a four-year-old on the playground, you're there with dad um, or mom. I try to not use mom as examples all the time, but Mm -hmm. let's say you're, you're there with, say you're there with dad and uh, you scrape your knee and you know, like, I can go over and tell dad, like, oh, I hurt myself. You know, I'm crying. But he's going to seem frustrated with my emotions. He's going to push them away. Uh, then I learned the best way to keep connection is actually to just manage my emotions on my own because dad can't yeah. handle it or dad's going to get mad or dad's going to mm. push me away. And so these are people that have learned to just suppress their emotions. And so through usually doing stuff. So that's where it's like, oh, yeah, like these are people that tend to really like to do tasks together. And that's a really connecting thing. 
but they don't necessarily feel comfortable connecting one-on-one. And the way that I think about it is that if you're in a relationship with someone like this, where they're, you know, they're just, I'm logical, I don't like emotions, we look at them and it's like, you know, the they're this house and the blinds are all drawn, so you can't see what they're actually feeling inside and they're keeping that away from you. Mm-hmm. But what I think is actually happening is uh, the all of the emotions are just stuffed in the basement and they like have a lock on the door. They don't know what they're feeling either. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. go, it's just these, these emotions. And it's like, if you never had anyone to help you identify your emotions or soothe you, if the best way to deal with them is just to push them down, like, why would you want to talk about emotions? And so they, they'll say things like, I'm just not an Mm -hmm. emotional person. But really what that tends to mean is like, I don't know how to do emotions. And, uh, I, you know, in couple therapy, (laughs) I see this all the time, you know, one partner is like, you know, I just want to know what you're feeling. And they're like, it's not that I'm not telling you. It's like, I don't know what I'm feeling. No one ever asked me this. Like, you know, I'm 30 years old and or I'm 40 years old and I've never had a space to even figure out what am I feeling. And Kurt Thompson in his book, Anatomy of the Soul, talks about people with this attachment style. Uh, the insula in the brain, the activity there uh, is reduced, which means that Um, The emotions that we feel in our body and the way that it connects to our brain is actually reduced. And so uh, these are people that biologically, in order to survive, have learned to disregard the emotions that are coming up. So when they say, yeah, I don't feel anything in some on some level, that's true. But at the same time, it can actually create a lot of anxiety. I don't know how to talk to my son about feelings. I don't know how to talk to my wife about uh, what's going on inside. I don't even know what's going on inside myself. And so what they'll do, because intimacy then feels really uncomfortable, they will avoid others. And they will, like I said, let's just go for a bike ride. Let's go do something. And they also will be less likely to get into relationships. They'll they'll bail quickly. They'll be become less attached. Because what they learned is being close to people doesn't help. It doesn't make things better. It's actually easier for me to go off and do my own thing and manage my emotions myself and distract myself. Um, yeah. And so I think that's a really misunderstood aspect to it, but really important. Yeah. And then what this looks like with faith uh, is this idea that I can't bring my emotions to God or that emotions are bad. Um, And, you know, you don't have to look far to see examples of this in the church. And so you have things like faith versus feelings. And, of course, this really contrasts with, like, looking in Psalms, right? But this this cultural, especially, like, masculinity has really showed up in the church in ways that it's sort of like – in order to get close to God, I have to have the right feelings. And this has a two-way street to it part where one part of it is, you know, I have to have the right feelings to get close to God, right? I have to be joyful or I have to be um, happy or I have to be grateful. Um, and there's not a place for anger or sadness or disappointment. But then it goes back the other way where we use our faith then to suppress those uncomfortable feelings. So, and I remember you uh, interviewed Jesse, Dr. Jesse Fox about spiritual bypass Mm -hmm. about a year ago. So that would be a, yeah, that would be a great example of that, right? Where people that, 
they already have this natural tendency to think in order to stay close to the people I love, I have to push my emotions down. And then they'll use faith to do it, which makes sense, right? I don't need to worry about, I just lost my job, but I don't need to worry because God's got it, right? But think about the difference in connection it is to sit with someone that tells you, yeah, God's got it. I'm not worried about it versus someone, maybe a good friend or a partner that says, I'm actually, I'm worried about this. Like, this is kind of scary for me. Mm-hmm. It's actually in that vulnerability that we can connect. And I would say the same goes for God, that I totally think that, believe that God meets us wherever we're at emotionally. You see that throughout scripture. And so when we feel like we have to put our emotions aside to get close to God, we actually miss out on this opportunity to create an emotional connection with God, That's so- which is really sad. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Even it reminds me what you're talking about. Also reminds me of an episode we did with Dr. Ken Pargament and some of the coping styles that he's written about in his work. In particular, the deferring coping style, mm-hmm. where you're like, mm-hmm. you know, God's got it. I'm just gonna defer and like step back. And mm-hmm. anyways, I just was reminded of that too. So yeah, that's so yeah, and so that yeah, yeah, you can see like how the like there's this approach to God of suppressing emotions, but there's also this uh, using God in order to suppress emotions mm-hmm. in a way. Yep. That's yeah. super interesting. Huh. Yeah. So if if I'm a, a faith leader or – and I, I say that not in terms of like only someone who like works in a faith context, right, but like someone who is a leader in a, a faith context, right, mm-hmm. how could uh, potentially faith communities – impact kind of, or like interact with our attachment, particularly in terms of our attachment to God, but also to each other, right? Like, how is this or like, what do I do with all this? If I say, oh, I can see kind of these tendencies in people. What what do I do with that if I'm kind of helping shape a, a faith community? Yeah, I think one thing that I've really appreciated from our pastor uh, is being really intentional about creating a a space on on Sunday mornings and elsewhere that is I want to say safe and calm and for example one thing that that he uh I remember talked about at one point was talking about communion and bringing your whole self to the communion table mm. uh whatever is going on um and we'll do things like pausing and just noticing like what's going on internally right now so one thing, I don't want to dive into it, but one thing I want to add is that there is a third attachment style called fearful or disorganized, which is uh, which is its own thing, but it's also a mix of, of the two. So if you're someone that's like, I feel both the avoidant and the preoccupied really strongly, you might be in that disorganized, fearful category. I have an article on my just a quick blog on my website about fearful attachment, um, but that might be something that would be helpful to look at. But yeah, looking at then for a faith community, it depends. We can look at it from these different attachment styles. So if we're looking at preoccupied attachment style, I think one thing that can be really helpful as a faith leader is to be on the lookout for ways that we implicitly talk about God as being far or close based on our behavior mm. and and also incorporating practices that remind our brains and our bodies of God's presence with us. Because that's what our attachment system needs is to know 
you're here with me no matter what. And so uh, breathing prayer can be really helpful, but um, also just interrogating some of the language we use. We might, like a worship leader might pray something at the end of a service saying, um, you know, God, please keep us close to you this week. And implicit in that is that our behavior determines how close or far we are from God. <laughs> and so you might mm. think about how can we intentionally remind people of things, you know, maybe finishing the service with something like, God, you know, as we go into our week, thank you for being with us no matter where we're at and no matter what we go through. Mm. Um, and I think that there's such a huge uh, scriptural component to that. And I think that our thinking about scripture, uh, whether it's monuments or it's breaking of bread, God knows that our brains need more than just words to remind us of God's continual presence with us in mm-hmm. unconditional love. And so, you know, we talk a lot about, or scripture talks a lot about reminders of God's kindness. And so in a lot of tradition, older traditions, we have some symbols and some uh, rhythms that remind us of God's enduring faithfulness. I've been doing uh, liturgical prayer for like six years, just like in our house with a community. But having that rhythm over and over and over again of these different seasons is a reminder of God's unfailing love. I think it communicates to my right brain in the way that uh, left brain statements don't, but it could also be images and that sort of thing. And uh, for the evangelical non-denominational church, there was a lot of, um, it was good that we were kind of like, well, these are dead traditions. We want a real relationship with Jesus. I think that was helpful in a lot of ways. But we also threw out some of the things that I think communicated to our kind of non-verbal brain about God's unending love. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I, I appreciate some of those practices that you just elevated to. I think they're they are super important in the ways that we do connect with God. So I so thank you for highlighting those. Um, one thing we really do love to ask our guests, especially recognizing all of the ways that they are pouring their heart into the work that they do. And I know you know we mentioned before that you have a podcast, and I know you are, have been very active on social media. You're you know you are um, a therapist and doing lots of good work around this area. I would be curious, Crispin, if you could tell us a little bit around like what your hope is for this work that you do and all of the different facets that you are engaged in this work. Mm, That's such a good question. It's a really important question to me. Mm. I would say that one of the things that is really dear to my heart is helping people have language around the difference between how they think and how they feel about God. And I think that is something that is really common in the church. Like I know I should believe that God is forgiving or God is loving, but uh, this other part of me doesn't feel that way. And I don't know what to do with that. And that's where attachment science can be really helpful for giving a framework for that. Like, of course you feel kind of resentful of God because you've gotten this message that you have to do all the work to keep God close. If you lie, you might lose the relationship. And that's that ambivalent attachment coming up of like, I really want you, but I'm also kicking away from you because (laughs) I'm resentful Mm -hmm. that I have to work so hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think for me to 
for people to be able to be honest about what they feel about God, you know, it feels like God doesn't really like me. And then investigate that and not to to create a space where that doesn't have to be a threatening question, but that can be a question where where we ask, yeah, why is that? And if if God created attachment this way, we know what kids need in order to feel safe with their parents. And we know that God continually refers uh, to self as parent. Um, then we can start to understand, yeah, what has gone wrong here? And why do we feel the way that we feel? And what are ways that we can then be honest with God um, and resolve those things? And that's the way I think we go forward is, yeah. you know, telling God or maybe people in your community, like, I'm I'm so mad that I have to work so hard to be close to you, <laughs> you know? And I think God can yeah. handle yeah. that honesty. Yeah. And I think that uh, God will totally respond and show up and, and, and guide you in a way of finding a more restful way of being with, being with him. Mm, that's so good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's great. Listener, if you want to connect with Crispin, you can find him at crispinmayfield.com on Twitter at K underscore underscore Mayfield or on Instagram at Crispin Mayfield. You can find his podcasts attached to the invisible or Prophetic Imagination Station, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I know there's also a website, propheticimaginationstation.com. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Crispin, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Uh, I just really appreciate the uh, I was just I was just feeling really grateful for the work that you do. I know how much work a podcast takes and um, and being able to to care for people and look at like what are the needs of the church while holding our faith tradition and scripture at the same time, I think is so important. So. That's not really on my topic, but I just felt myself feeling overwhelmed with gratefulness for you two and the work you're doing. So we'll just end with that. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.